Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, The Fallow Fields, we are joined by Sarah Zimmerman, professor of English at Fordham University, who shares her thoughts about the lecture as an effective instructional strategy. Today on Twice Over, we're talking with my dear friend and colleague in English department at Fordham University, Professor Sarah Zimmerman. Sarah is a professor of English, and she is the author of, among many other things, the wonderful book, The Romantic Literary Lecture in Britain, that came out with Oxford University Press in 2019. Steve and I have been talking off and on since the pandemic started about this idea of the lecture, what lectures are, what they're good for, why everyone hates them. If you read the tiniest little article in the Chronicle about what works in teaching, one of the first enemies you'll see of effective pedagogy is something called the lecture. And so Steve and I have been kind of wondering, like, what is a lecture? Is every time we talk in front of our students a lecture? And then all of a sudden I realized, wait, my friend wrote a book about lectures and the history of lectures. And so we thought it'd be great to talk to you for that, among many other reasons that I'm sure it will be great to talk to you. So Sarah, welcome to the Twice Over podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Sarah, you wrote this book about the romantic literary lecture. And what made you interested in this question of this phenomenon in early 19th century England? So that's my field, British Romanticism. And when I started lecturing myself, I realized that some of the texts that I teach in the field, lectures by Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Hazlitt, for instance, that we only really read about them and write about them as print works, as if they were never publicly delivered social events whatsoever. And when I began lecturing in my first teaching assignment, I realized that we were missing out on understanding them in the medium in which they were originally for which they were written and in and, and which they reached their first audiences. And so as I was learning to lecture myself, which was a long, arduous, difficult process, I began to think about the lectures in my field too. And so the book really came out of what frankly, I tend to think of as a rather traumatic teaching experience. But once I learned how to lecture, I also knew how to read lectures even if they became print works, I decided that you always have to think of them in two different media, in print and also in their original performance forms, if in fact they were originally delivered. Not all lectures in my field were delivered. Sometimes they were just published as lectures and they were never really lectures, but a lot of them were performed first and then had a second life in print. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say I was lecturing? What do you mean when you say I learned how to lecture? When I le learned to lecture, it was at a state university where we received teaching assignments. You didn't request courses. You taught in your field, but you also got assigned what they called service courses. 
um, unfortunate name. My main one was an introduction to literature that I taught three times a year. I had a three-two teaching load, and so you could, I would lecture twice one semester and once the other semester, this introduction to literature course. And it all depended on enrollments, as it always does, but the classes ranged from 150 to 395 students, very um, clearly because that was the most I ever taught. And so the rooms ranged from classrooms that could hold 150 students to classes that felt like football stadiums in some way. Like a lot of teachers of my generation, I had received virtually no instruction in how to teach. There was just, it, we just didn't think then. You need to learn about Coleridge. You don't need to learn about how to teach Coleridge. Exactly. And that's, that's problematic for a whole host of other reasons we don't have to go into. And, and, and luckily it's not, that's not the view anymore, but I, I simply didn't know how to teach, let alone lecture. And I don't think most teachers even now, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but are taught how to lecture specifically. I think you're right. And that's one of the reasons why Steve and I are so interested in this is that a lot of us in a kind of informal way call any kind of direct instruction lecture. That might be a demonstration. It might be a guided discussion. It might be a lot of different things, right? But the discrete performance that you're describing, which I take to be a largely uninterrupted, say 40 or 50 minutes of talking at people about a topic where that is intended as the mechanism through which they will glean something beyond what they've done in the reading is not a skill that I think we teach. And I think we use that term lecture to cover a whole bunch of other things, including that. You're right. We don't have the kind of lecture that I'm talking about where it was 50 minutes, as you say, uninterrupted for the most part speaking. I think most lecturers stop for questions and some brave soul will raise a hand and you can stop and do interactive, more interactive things within the 50 minutes. But most of the, the active learning, as, as we say now, that goes on in lectures often happens in sections, in discussion sections that are run separately from the lecture and that, are, that supplement the lecture with all the things that we think a seminar should do. And typically not run by the lecturer herself, right? Typically run by a graduate student instructor or an adjunct or a teaching assistant. The best systems have the lecturer teaching a section of the lecture themselves. I did not do that. I was not allowed to do that. And I think that that's a mistake because then you really have to talk to the other, the teachers of the students who are working with them more directly because reading the room only gets you so far and heaven help you, this, the teaching evaluations only get you so far because those are even those are complicated in ways that are particular to lectures too. So I, I think what I'm hearing is that a lecture is essentially a piece of content that an instructor would make and then perform. Is, is that right? I was told before I began lecturing that I should not write the lectures out, that simply reading aloud, that simply delivering content would be 
deadening. And in fact, just to give you one brief romantic period example, when Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who became a very popular lecturer, started lecturing, and he, by the way, had experience as a political speaker and as a preacher, he wrote his lectures out, delivering them to popular audiences, and it was a disaster. He said by his fourth lecture, he had started speaking extemporaneously. Now that led to disaster too, because he was famously erratic as, he, as, a, as a extemporaneous speaker. But I think that those two poles of reading something verbatim or speaking off the cuff, I think most lecturers try to do something in the middle and learn what works for them. That's one of the main things I would say if I were teaching someone to lecture is you have to figure out the style that is particular to who you are. And I think it's who you are as a person, as a personality. There's been a lot written about lecturing and equity. <laughs> to what extent lectures are inclusive, to what extent they're not, the reasons they are and aren't. And I'm not an expert on educational theory about the lecture, I just wanna say, but I have done some reading on it over the years and I have some sense of what some of those ideas are. But I think that for Women, I think that for minorities of all kinds, I think for people of color, for instance, um, I, e I even think class, all of those things can play into how you're perceived as a lecturer and how you are comfortable as a lecturer. And I think that the role of lecturer is actually has some equity problems built into it as well. I think that- Different all, from just teacher or professor. I, I think it's magnified with lecturing. I don't know if it's different, I think it's magnified. So even if you just read the evaluations, right? You can see that a lot of the biases that we know come about in evaluating teaching, right? Those kind of expectations are so get magnified if you don't know the person at all on a personal level. So I found that my teaching evaluations in terms of my being assessed as a woman and at that point as a young woman lecturing were harsher than they ever were when the students actually knew me on a personal level. I can only assume that's the case for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Gender, racial, other kinds of inequities get magnified in the lecture room. Now, I think that the students also get disadvantaged based on equity too, potentially, often based on how prepared they are to be in a big classroom where they're receiving a lot less guidance. If you already have had a very strong education and you are very comfortable as a student in asking and for what you need and getting what you need, then you know how to, you come better prepared to glean from a lecture what you need to glean. It helps you to have a good education before you walk into a lecture room as a student. I'm not clear on like what a lecture is and what's it, like what is it supposed to do? Like why, why would you give a lecture and, and what, are it, what are the aims generally for this thing we're calling a lecture, which I'm still interpreting, I guess, as an uninterrupted kind of speech given by an expert before an audience, who, as you say, is tasked with extracting some kind of meaning from this speech. 
Does that sound right? What I decided a lecture was at its best in my field, so teaching literature, was modeling for students the things I wanted to them to learn and being very explicit about the ways in which I was reading texts. And so I would say, what I'm going to do is give you a critical reading of a text, the kinds of things you'll be doing in your papers and on your examinations. And here's how you put together a reading of a critical text. And I'm gonna show you how to do it in the class. It was a demonstration of critical reading, being very explicit about what's involved. And, and that kind of, I think you can teach students to, to learn the subject, if that makes any sense. It's not just about, it's not delivering. If it's delivering content, I think, um, they, you, you're, we're delivering content whenever we teach. We tell them the romantic period lasts roughly from X to Y, and we're talking about Britain, and here's what's going on in Britain, just so you have some background. But no, I think lecturing is a chance to perform the kinds of work that we're asking students to learn in a self-conscious, explicit way. That's so exciting. And it makes me wonder if that, something I doubt, right? Which is, was that what Coleridge was doing? When these men were lecturing, mostly men, right? In the early 19th century, what were they doing? What did they think we were doing? And kind of, can you give us like a potted version of how we got from that to why, why did those lectures emerge 200 years ago? And how did we get from there to here? So it's, it really varies from, from kind of place to place. There are all these histor different historical stories of how the, the medium emerged in Britain, where the universities in England and where the universities were based more on the tutorial model than the lecture model. Lectures just, you had itinerant science lectures who often had some kind of device, an orrery or a magic lantern or something to demonstrate when a lecture experiments. With Sarah, lecture. what's an orrery? I can't remember. An orrery is a, a kind of um, model of the, the solar system. This, for astronomy lectures, you could you could demonstrate how the planets move around, and so I these itinerant science lectures would go on these tours throughout England and drawing popular paying audiences, and eventually scientific and literary institutions developed where those scientific lectures initially, and then there were lectures on a range of subjects would have sub subscriptions to lecture series. And so the Royal Institution, which still exists in London, is one of those places where chemists like Humphrey Davy gave very popular lectures to subscribing audiences, both, both women and men, um, in a period when you know women weren't, of course, going to universities. So this became a very popular thing, partly because women flocked to public lectures of all kinds. In countries like Germany and Scotland, where the, the lectures were built into the university system, you often had professors who would make extra money by giving public lectures or opening the kind of university lecture doors to the public. And so, and then in, in the United States, and I'm not an all an expert on this, but there was the Chautauqua system, you know, a kind of popular lecturing in the mid, late 
late 19th century, early 20th century, that was an, another way that lectures got po popular in this country. So that to me felt so cool to hear you say that, right? That that would be a kind of mini lecture in a way, right? That's a, a, a micro version of what a lecture might be. And I felt as I was listening to you, like I was learning, which leads me to my next question, right? Is that uh, studies show when they take students and have them listen to a lecture versus have them do some active learning activities and then assess what they've learned. Students feel like they were learning while they were listening to the lecture, but actually they do better on the test when they've done active learning. So what is that? I see you nodding. So you know this research and um, it makes me wonder kind of, do you think lecturing is a good idea? What's it for in 2022? And how do you think about it now with our students? I think we have to teach students how to be active in the lecture room. And the main ways in which they need to do that are note-taking and listening. And so one thing that people have been talking about lately with lecturing is that learning to listen and being an attentive listener and being able to sustain listening is something that we need to teach our students and we need to be self-conscious about that when we're teaching in the room, right? We need to talk about what we're doing. My word for doing this when I was lecturing was you have to theatricalize everything you're doing so that you have to say, so what I'm, what I'm going to do now is give you five minutes on this and you know, listen for this and I want, and so I think we have to be, but that's active. It just doesn't look active. And the other thing that we need to teach students to do in a lecture is take notes because there's research on that. And what I, what I learned by trial and error was that I always worked from outlines. My lectures were always organized, but my students didn't have a sense of their being organized until I wrote an outline on the board, a full outline for every lecture. And I think it's because it gave them a sense of not being at sea. They, they could see where we were in the lecture and when I would stop talking, right? So they had a sense, you know, she knows what she's doing. She's not rambling. There's going to be an end, but also I should take notes on this because this is important. They told me that it helped them take notes for me to give them the outline because they could organize it. They could organize it in their minds and in their notebooks better. So we need to teach them to listen and take notes and to synthesize what's being said and also to develop, that means their own disagreements with what's being said. And how do you do that? That's interesting. You do what you do in any classes. You say, this text has been read various ways. And so you give options, but you also ask questions and, and you can you can say, do you, does anyone what do you think about this? And you can open up different interpretations in the lecture by engaging them a little bit or just by explaining. You could read this scene in different ways. Right. Just, I love giving students guardrails when we're thinking about a topic. You asked what lectures are, are, are good for. 
one of the things they're good for, and I think we all do this a little bit in non-lecture courses too, is to demonstrate how we read critically. This is how to read a sonnet. I'm going to I'm going to show you a reading of a sonnet. I'm going to go through it, and I'm not going to say this is this is not the only reading. You know, you can you can do what you're saying and make that clear all along the way. But I think that having models to work from and models to learn from is really important for giving students the sense that they can do this on their own. But, but I like someone to show me how they do something so that I can imitate in some ways and then develop my own critical arguments. And so I think that demonstration is built into lecturing. You know, science lectures have been doing this forever, you know, demonstrations with electricity, things that explode, et cetera. But you can do it with poems too, or plays or novels by demonstrating a reading, but saying, I'm just showing you how to do it. I'm not telling you this is the true reading thinking about those boundaries, setting those boundaries for our students, and then showing them where they can play within the boundaries is such a tricky project in teaching. Well, I, I like this idea of, in K-12, what we call teaching from no prior knowledge. So students come to the lecture hall, I'm going to give a lecture, and I just assume they know what to make of this. They, they know what to do in that space. And so that has real implications for the students to get something out of this lecture or even to get what I'm hoping they will get out of the lecture if I don't direct them in some way. I'm wondering if you've ever had your students then make lectures because you say you're modeling this idea of deploying your disciplinary expertise for them to show them that that's sort of how I would you know, do X as an expert. So I'm wondering if the lecture is a form that would be worth worthwhile exploring as a student project. Not that they would give a lecture because you have 150 students, obviously they can't each take a turn, but to think about, okay, the topic and outline and sort of fill that in, right? And think about how you would give this lecture if you were tasked with doing that. I'm wondering if that's like the next step instructionally, if you've ever thought about that. It's a great question. I think I think a couple of things. I think that another thing a lecture is good at doing is on good days, demonstrating that effective speaking has its purposes, right? That it can it can be persuasive, it can be engaging, it can be entertaining, you can learn a lot. And on the good days, I think you can communicate in a lecture some of your own real enthusiasm in ways that are unique to the, to the lecture it, itself. And I think that at Fordham, we're asked to teach students to speak well as well as write well. And I frankly think I've never completely lived up to that, although I've tried in my classes by coming up with different kinds of presentations that teach, for instance, how to teach. So one of my favorite presentations is for a student to, to develop working with me three questions and then have 15 minutes in the class to teach. So it's not lecturing, but it is getting up and teaching a little bit. And often the students will say, I want to set this up. I want to 
So they're, they're not saying I want to lecture, but they really do want to introduce the questions by saying what they think is important. It's Anne's framework. And so I think that I would like to develop more ways of helping them do that effectively because they're thrilled when it goes well. They're thrilled when a little mini lecture and then teaching their three questions goes well. I'm wondering your thoughts about the recorded lecture. Is an audience necessary, a live audience necessary, do you think, to maximize the effectiveness of a lecture? Or can you capture those that same value in a, in a pre-recorded lecture? I feel like we've all learned from Zoom that, that and teach, just teaching online in general these last few years, that there are capacities in teaching that way then we can get out of the medium that I wouldn't have thought were there before. So I don't wanna say that it's not possible. I actually, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but miss a few things about teaching online. I do think that lecturing in particular is much better in person. I think read, being able to read the room as you're talking and make adjustments as you're speaking based on who's in the room and how the day is going and what the weather is outside is actually best for lecturing. Someone else might be able to teach me why I'm just not lecturing online well, but I, I have not been able to do that. That's really interesting. This whole idea of the flipped classroom, you're, you're gonna record your lecture and then we come to be in the same physical space, we're going to engage in what Anne was calling active learning. Mm -hmm. But I think what I'm hearing from you, Sarah, is that a lecture is a, a lecture done well, a well-designed lecture really is active learning. Absolutely is. And I think that, again, if students are able, and I, I think we have to be careful about teaching this, of, to, to be able to listen actively and then it's a very active space and to, to, to be kind of more polemical about it I, I think that the word that comes up with lecturing is often passive right that there's kind of passive learning and I think that's both not that's that's to have people who are sitting quietly be interpreted as simply being passive. I don't think that's accurate. And I also think it doesn't allow us to do other things that we need to do when we're learning things, which is to listen a while, to reflect, to not be sure what we think in the moment. And a lot of learners learn better that way anyway, to kind of take things in more slowly, more gradually, to listen and then to reflect and then speak later. And so I, I actually think that there's a danger in the notion of, of active learning that activity and productivity can sometimes be too closely aligned and we shouldn't have to feel productive in every moment always. That's my polemical point. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think that there's an awful lot of pressure on students and on educators to feel that every single minute is productive in an immediate 
um, demonstrable way. And I think that it's not giving, it's not true for one thing to different kinds of learning, right? It, it doesn't allow for a variety of learning styles. And um, I, I think it's missing out on one thing that school can do, which is give people a little bit of time. The students being taught how to take notes and engaging in this kind of active translation from what the lecturer is saying to what they can begin to internalize and make their own. Yes. When I think about your idea of productivity, so there's a kind of public productivity where I'm creating an artifact and sharing it or handing it in. But there's this kind of private productivity, right? Where I'm creating artifacts that are useful to me in my personal growth and development. And maybe the focus is too much on this public kind of productivity. That if no one else can see or measure what I'm doing, then I am not being productive. I, th I think I could completely agree. And I, I always have this romantic um, metaphor that I, I use. I'm not sure it's gonna um, be useful to anyone else, but I always think of the fallow fields, right? That you need to let fields lie fallow or you know, just for a little while, but that fallowness is actually productive in the long run, if you think about it, right? The soil needs to rest a little bit and you can sit in a lecture. I love hearing a good lecture um, a good speech. I love taking something in and not having to constantly be coming up with my own thoughts for a little while, my own ideas, but you're absorbing. And something, or to use another metaphor, something can be, I'm mixing my metaphors terribly, be percolating. And then it turns into something else later, but it's not, I'm constantly doing, 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 producing, producing, producing in the moment. And I think that we're nervous about the idea of the fallow field because it looks like it's just wasteland. And I really think that's one of the reasons the lec lectures get a bad rap is you're just passive, nothing's going on, it's dead time, it's dead space. And I, I, I think people get nervous. Yeah. We're able to see immediate results. And so it's, it's about patience partly. And I talk about this, the tension between like student-centeredness and teacher-centeredness, the notion that lectures are a teacher-centered approach and collaborative and more active kinds of learning are student-centered. But in listening to you talk, Sarah, I'm thinking about, well, students are being provided with this modeling, this demonstration, this information, and they're tasked with making it their own. In, in a lecture. And so I can think of that as really as, as deeply student-centered, right? I'm not asking you to do anything except make this your own in these moments. Maybe later we'll deploy this newfound knowledge or competence in some measurable way. But for now, the project is for you to begin to, to translate this into something that's meaningful to you. Right. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And the idea of, of note taking and, you know, some studies say particularly handwritten notes as opposed to, you know, computer taken notes 
give students an ability to synthesize just in the act of listening and taking notes. So that's one way in which it begins happening, even though you look like you're just you know, taking notes on what someone else is saying. I'd say that there's a, a different way in which I think of the lecture as student-centered, which I think that any lecturer worth their salt reads the room in advance and in the moment and retrospectively in revising a lecture and caters what they're saying to their students, to their particular students. Because any classroom, any lecture room, like any classroom, you get to know the students by how they respond and where, how they, when they don't respond. And so I always said about my lectures that it, the students didn't change the way I read texts but they informed how I taught them because I was always thinking of them in writing the lectures and expanding in the moment when I could see eyes light up or shift tack when I could see I was losing them. And so they were at the center of everything I did as a lecturer. I had things I needed to teach them, but how I taught them was entirely based on the students. It often sounds pat or false when faculty members say, oh, I learned so much from my students, right? But you're helping me to articulate in my clumsy way what that actually is like, right? Because you see their eyes light up, you see them turn away, you see the passages that are fascinating to them and you can kind of compare what's interested you and what's interested them and start to puzzle out the difference. And that teaches you something really deep, I think. I think that's brilliantly put. And I can give you an example from Coleridge. Oh, cool. <laughs> My favorite. So yes, tell. Well, he was lecturing on Shakespeare. These were paying audiences. And so he needed to attract auditors, particularly women auditors who could turn a lecture series into a kind of event. And so he started focusing on some of these topics were, um, to quote him, love and the female character in Shakespeare's plays. And so he started focusing on aspects of the plays that I can almost guarantee you he never would have focused on if he didn't need to attract and keep engaged and interested and returning for the next lecture, these all important women auditors. And so absolutely, I do think that I have learned in that way by what students are interested in. It's encouraged me to pay attention to aspects of text I never would have otherwise. You know, there is this idea of TED Talks being an example of the kind of lecturing you shouldn't be doing. And so what I'm hearing in this conversation with you is that when we evaluate lecture as an instructional methodology, we're applying too much attention to the lecturer and not enough attention to the audience for that lecture. Does that make sense to you? It, it does. And I, I have to say that I, <laughs> I actually love TED Talks and so do my students. When I've shown little snippets, it's partly because I think someone speaks well and can generate a certain level of excitement about a topic. I have a, I have a class that I teach on 
clouds in romanticism. And there's a TED talk on, on clouds and on appreciating clouds. And inevitably when I show it, I have students in the room who kind of guiltily confess that they love TED talks. I actually think that the, the lectures, I, I think that often when people don't like lectures, they're thinking about academic lectures. And, and a lot of us are not taught again to lecture and don't lecture well. And I was firmly in that camp for years. I think I learned to lecture. I think I learned to be a pretty good, not a great, but a pretty good lecturer. But the people who give TED Talks are almost always really good speakers and people pay to hear really good speakers, right? People go to popular lecture, to lectures still if they know it's gonna be a good speaker on an interesting subject. So Anne, should I ask, or do you wanna ask if, if Sarah looked um, at clouds from both sides, is that what you <laughs> I mean, you set it up, I could not, I could not. When you talk to people who are starting out their careers as teachers, right? Um, what do you tell them about the lecture part of their job, how to do it. You know, even if it's, even if it's lecturing in the way that we typically do it at Fordham, which is, you know, a room of say 35 students, and it might be 15 minutes of your session where you're doing some just monologue. I think the first thing I tell them is that they have to figure out a style that they're comfortable with, that they'll enjoy as much as they can to make that kind of teaching their own. Because I really do think that people come to lecturing with different likes and dislikes, abilities. I have people, I've, I've known people who seem to lecture almost effortlessly and who love public speaking. I think a lot of us don't and have to learn to lecture in ways that they will be comfortable in the classroom. That's the main thing I tell them. I, I, when I first started lecturing, I went to a bunch of lectures at the school I was teaching at then and I watched different people lecture to try to get a sense of who I could model myself on because I didn't know how to do it. And as it turned out, none of those examples suited my personality. I couldn't use them, but just seeing that everyone adapted lecturing to their own style and that students responded to different things and different lecturers. There was one lecturer who, in, for instance, who loved to stage events. He would organize little almost plays on the stage. He would have someone reading an Emily Dickinson poem dressed in as Emily Dickinson, for instance, right? He was just a, a, a great show person and that really worked. He was wildly popular. There was another lecturer who was very effective at communicating to hundreds of students that she genuinely cared about their learning experience. And I saw them respond to her 
communicating how important their education was. Um, and, and they responded to that. I had, there was another lecturer who would walk up and down the aisles with a microphone and interview students. And the students loved that. And so these were all really popular lectures, which is why I visited their classrooms. I couldn't do any of those things at all. But gradually I figured out how I could, my personality could lecture for a little while effectively too. But figuring that out is I think um, a process. Lecturing is not one size fits all. And if I think if a new teacher tries to perform in a way that you think a lecturer should perform, being charismatic, for instance, if that doesn't come naturally, it's going to be miserable for everyone involved. You talked about watching lectures and not finding a model. So this is the other question. When you think about who's been a model for you in whatever way, whom do you think about? Sue Howell was a high school teacher of English who made us somehow feel even as high school students that not only that she loved everything she taught and only taught things she loved, but that she really wanted to sit around with us and in a very rigorous but fun way, talk to us as if we were adults. And I think that for high school students, having a teacher really seem to want to know your opinion and she would respond to it as if you were an adult too. She would tell you if she didn't like, <laughs> if she didn't think that you had supported what you said. But it just gave us this sense that we were really talking about books. That's what we were doing. We were sitting around talking about books with someone who knew more about them than we did and who maybe loved them even more than we did, but she wanted to hear what we thought. Nothing better than being in conversation with someone who wants to hear what you think. And Sarah, it's so great to listen to what you think. So thanks for being our guest. Thank you so much. I was honored to be asked by the two of you to talk about teaching. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.